then you're going to look just like the rest of us. So uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, continue our series in, uh, in 1 John. And uh, as we do that, I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to, uh, to expose you to uh, what we do. A big part of my job is to help people find community. Now, in one sense, we have a community here this morning, uh, but uh, we'd like for people to be able to go a little bit deeper into community where you can uh, know, know other people and be known by them. Uh, our community groups, we, uh, we try to do four things. When I talk to people about community groups, the first question that I always get is, what do you do in those community groups, right? And nobody wants to walk into something that they don't know anything about. That's, we just talked about what you dressed up in Halloween. That's, that is scary, right, walking into a group and you don't know what's going to happen. So we encourage our groups to do uh, four things. One is to study the Scriptures, Secondly, we encourage them to, uh, uh, to have a little something to eat. We found out that if you have food, people come. So we want to have a little something to eat. Uh, then we want to be able to get to know one another. We want to see acquaintances become friendships. And then finally, to pray for one another. Now, there are a couple of those things. Two out of four can be a little bit intimidating to folks. Uh, praying, you know, if you, if, if you may say, hey, I, I really don't pray. Or if I do, I'm not about to pray out loud in front of other people. That's okay. We'll accommodate that. But the other thing that can sometimes be intimidating is, uh, is studying the Scriptures. I know people who've been in a church for 30 years. They own three, four, five, six, seven Bibles. But uh, they've never been in a Bible study with other people. And part of the hurdle in that sometimes is I don't... I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't want to get into a group of Bible scholars and then, and then get lost or embarrassed. And I understand that. And so a lot of our groups use a system called lessons and puzzles. It's really simple. Now, for this morning's purpose, I am going, because I have authority, I am going to declare you a community group. Now, you're a little bit larger than most of our groups, but, uh, but we're going to do uh, what we do in a lot of our groups. We're going to do a little thing called lessons and puzzles, and we're going to do that with the scripture from 1 John chapter 3. So the first thing we do is when we get together is we read the scripture together uh, out, out loud. Uh, if, you're, if you're from a liturgical church, it's called in unison, okay? but we're going to read it together. Are you ready? One, two, three, go. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, 
Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, that's step one. We read the scripture together. Now, step two in Lessons and Puzzles is real simple. We ask ourselves two questions. Question number one, what did I learn from this section of Scripture? And question number two is what questions does this section of Scripture raise in my mind? Those are the lessons and those are the puzzles. Sound simple? It really is. So I'm going to walk us through this text, and we're going to ask those questions. So we'll start with the first verse. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So a couple of really simple things to spot in this verse is the first thing is that what has been lavished on us is not just love, but great love. And it's great love because it's the Father's love. God's love is, is on a different level than the love that we have uh, for one another. God's love demands nothing in return. God's love is not predicated on anything that we do. It is not based on our performance. God loves us out of his decision, out of his will, and he loves us exactly the way we are. There is nothing that you can do that will ever make God love you more than he does right now. And there is nothing that you can ever do that will, God, that will make God love you less than he does right now. It is the love of the Father that has been lavished on us. So the second thing that we learn from this is we pay close attention to those personal pronouns. If you'll notice, they're not singular, they're plural. It's the love that's been lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. So God's love is, is, is unique. He, God does have a love for each individual. It is a personal relationship with every individual that God wants. But God calls us through that love into community. One of the first lessons that we learn from Scripture in the book of Genesis, when God is creating you know, uh, the light and the darkness and the sea and the land and the, and the birds in the air and the fish in the sea and the creepy crawly things, every time God created something, he said, that's good. And we created man, he said, that's very good. And then the next thing he says is, oh, wait a minute. It's not good 
for man to be alone. We are not created to go through life alone. Life is too hard for that. We are created to be in community with other people. So God's love calls us into communion, not just with Him, but into communion with one another. The third thing in this first verse, and we won't find three in all, in all of them, but the third thing is that it says that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. It's a reality. When God says, you are a child of God, that's a new reality. It's not a possibility. It's a reality. When God bestows a name, along with that name comes the reality. So, when God calls us His children, we are His sons and daughters. In the same way, we do not simply call God Father. God is our Father. See how easy that was? That wasn't so hard. It didn't, didn't hurt too bad. All we really did was we slowed down and we paid close attention to the words. It's the words that are important. This is the Word of God. And so as we slow down and as we savor these words, God will speak to us in new and refreshing ways. So there's those three, three kind of lessons from the first verse, but there's also a puzzle in this first verse. What does it mean when John writes and says, the reason the world does not know us, children of God, is that it did not know Him. What does that mean? Hey, what does it mean that the world doesn't know us and the reason it doesn't know us is because the world did not know him? Well, the text that we read earlier in, from the Gospel of John, written by the same, same fella, right? Gospel of John, he wrote, He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Have you ever asked the question, why is that? If he created the world and he came to his own, why didn't they get it? I mean, they, they actually had the privilege of, of watching him perform miracles, of listening to his teaching. They could, they could listen to him, they could touch him, they could see him, which is the way John started this letter. These are, these are, this is a reality. It's a concrete, objective reality. Why didn't they get it? Well, I have a theory. The theory is that uh, for the same, they didn't recognize him for the same reason that when I was a young child, I got underwear and socks for Christmas. It's the exact same reason. I did not ask for underwear and socks. I did not want underwear and socks. But apparently, my parents thought that I needed underwear and socks. What they wanted, what they were asking for, was a Savior who would come and who would free them from economic and political hand of Rome. They wanted economic and political freedom. Jesus came to set them free from sin. 
Jesus came with a kingdom that was not of this world. A kingdom where God reigns within us, and that's not what they expected. Here's the truth in this. God will always give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. If you don't get anything else out of this first part, that's what I want you to take home. God will always give us what we need, not necessarily what we want or what we ask for. Now on to verse 2. We're going to march along here because uh, community groups don't last for an hour, and uh, we're not going to spend an hour in this either. Dear friends, John writes, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Now we are children of God. So let me ask a question. How are we doing with that? If I am a child of God and I have this older brother Jesus, why why is it that my life doesn't look like his life? Why is it that I don't think and reason and behave like Jesus? If I am a child of God, why is it that I don't necessarily always look like a child of God? Well, the reason is that we are Christians under construction. We are Christians under construction. Just as you would not expect a baby to have the same judgment, the same moral grounding, the same awareness, the same will that that child will have when it grows up, we as Christians, as children of God, we are destined to be conformed to the image of the Son, but we are not quite there yet. The glory of our sonship remains concealed and imperfect. Being conformed to the image of Christ is a process. Now Paul gets at the same, the same issue. right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I love this text because this text was written in the first century A.D. Now, in the first century A.D., they had mirrors, right? We have mirrors today, right? You've got a rear view mirror in your car. You've got side mirrors. Probably got a big mirror in the bathroom. Ladies carry those little mirrors around with them and open them up and make adjustments, you know, through the day. Y'all don't need to do that. You're beautiful without all those adjustments. But our mirrors today are pretty good. Matter of fact, the Hubble telescope has a mirror that is near perfect, right? It looks out into the universe. It's, it's a perfect mirror. In the first century, mirrors were not so good. Here's a picture of what a first century mirror looks like. The best they could do is to take silver or bronze and polish it. Because of the irregularities and impurities in the mirror, the reflection was at best a distortion of reality. You could see yourself, but you couldn't see yourself very well. In the same way, the 
irregularities and impurities of our life distort the image of Jesus. Yes, we are made in God's image. But when people see us, when I see myself, I don't see God as He is. We are being conformed to the image of the Son, but we are not there yet. There will come a time when we see Jesus face to face, when all of those impurities are completely and finally removed, we will see Him face to face and we will be just like Him. But right now, we don't know exactly what that looks like. There are too many imperfections in our lives, too many impurities. And in in John writes, he says, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. So when you look in the mirror, just remember... It may look crystal clear, but it's really more like that first century mirror. The image of God is not necessarily clearly staring back at you. And when people see you, they're not going to see Jesus as He really is. They're going to see somebody who is being conformed to His image. John continues in verse 3. He says, All who have this hope, this hope of being conformed to his image, uh, purify themselves just as he is pure. So the main thing here is that our hope must be in him, not in ourselves. It can never be in ourselves. He's the one who lived the perfect life. He's the one who died for our sins. He is the one that we must place our hope in because he and he alone is pure and perfect. So then I had to scratch my head. I said, well, yeah, I get that part. But why does John tell us, purify yourselves as he is pure? My understanding is that we're incapable of purifying ourselves. If we were capable of purifying ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus. If we were capable of purifying ourselves, don't you think that by now, with all of human history, somebody would have got it right? So we're not capable of purifying ourselves. And so I had to dig a little bit deeper, and we do this sometimes in our group. And here's what I learned. That the key is the the Greek word that John uses to translate as purify. Earlier in his letter, in chapter 1, he writes, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in my mind, cleanse and purify, those they seem like synonyms to me. But John uses very different words. When he talks about being cleansed from our unrighteousness, cleansed from our sin, he uses the word catharsis. It's a word that literally means to be released from. So Jesus literally releases us from our unrighteousness. He releases us from our sin. We cannot release ourselves from our sin. So here he uses a very different word. Here he uses a word that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is almost always used to signify a ritual or a ceremonial purification. So before, before someone were, uh, were going to go in and copy scriptures, they would go through a a purification ritual 
look very much, they'd, they'd, they'd go and they'd go underwater and they'd come up and they were symbolically, ceremoniously, uh, ceremonially clean. Uh, when they were going to go into the temple and offer, offer certain sacrifices, they would have to purify themselves. And it was a ritual that they would go, go through. So what John is really talking about here is that for those that have their hope in Him, we must purify ourselves as He is pure. He's talking about baptism. He's talking about being baptized. Ba- baptism is the, is the, the doorway, the entrance in, into the church, into the community of faith. So he's talking about baptism here. He's not talking about trying to be better. He's talking about baptism. Now, one of my favorite, all-time favorite people in church history um, is uh, the German reformer Martin Luther. Um, Luther has a lot of biographers, and, and they all say pretty much the same thing. Now, remember, Luther was a pastor. Luther was the guy who took the New Testament and then the Old Testament and translated it into the language that people could read. He wanted the Word of God in the hands of people. Luther was a reformer. He was bringing change to the church. But here's what else Luther was. This is according to one of his biographers. He said, Luther drank too much on occasion. Now, you'll be glad to know that the only occasions which Luther drank too much were on days that ended in Y. Luther loved his beer. Here's what else they said. He was often vulgar, using, and you'll have to look this up after the service, but I had to, I had to use a fancy word here, because if I use a real one, I'd get thrown out. He was often vulgar, using a great many scatological references in his writings and speech. He could be merciless, even cruel, in his verbal attacks on his enemies. And if you read any of Luther's stuff, he didn't mix any words. He, he, he went for the jugular. He's a pastor. I like him. But Luther was also subject to long bouts of deep depression. Now, maybe, maybe it was a chemical imbalance. My theory is that what happened with Luther is he was caught in between knowing that he was a child of God and the reality of his life. Knowing that he was created in the image of God and being conformed to the image of Christ, and yet when he looks in the mirror, it's not what he sees. And that depressed him. Maybe you've gotten depressed a time or two. Thinking, hey, wait a minute. What I just said, what I just did, I don't don't think that was very Christ-like. In his darkest days and nights of this struggle, Luther would place his hand on his forehead and he would say to himself, I have been baptized. He was reminding himself that his life is in Christ. 
His salvation is because of what Christ has done. Not because of any good or evil that He has done. So the next time you find yourself in a place where you're tempted to kick yourself, you're you're tempted to hide and, and crawl into a hole, you're tempted to isolate yourself from others, try putting your hand on your forehead and remind yourself you have been baptized. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So our hope is in Him because we have been baptized into Him. Now, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10, and this is where everybody wanted to get to, I know. Uh, Because this is where all the language about sin and sinning and the devil and, you know, all that kind of stuff is in there. So I'm going to to read through it uh, again uh, just because it's so good. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Any questions about any of that? Yeah, that's a real head-scratcher. So I asked myself a couple of questions. The first one was this. John appears to be saying, is he saying, that if a person sins, if they do not do what is right, if they do not love, they are children of the devil and cannot be children of God? Well, he did say that. But where, did, where would that leave me? <laughs> Right? It's, if that's true, it's already too late for me. Maybe it's too late for you too. He mentions sin ten times and he mentions the devil three times in these verses. So here's another question. Do you think that John is trying to sow the seeds of doubt in the minds of Christians about their standing before God? Is that really what he's trying to do? Is he trying to get us to doubt whether or not we're in a right relationship with God? Well, if it depends on our behavior, I would say, yeah, probably so. But we know that it doesn't depend on our behavior. It depends on Christ, what Christ has done for us. So there are two two little mentions of Jesus in in these verses that talk so much about sin and the devil. The first one is in verse 5. It says, Jesus appeared that he might take away our sins. 
He's already said in, in, in the second chapter, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's what you need to remember. Do we sin? Yes, we do. Matter of fact, in the first chapter, he says, if you say you have no sin in you, the truth isn't in you. Right? And you make God out to be a liar. So we do sin, but Jesus came to take away our sins. The second thing is in verse 8. Jesus appeared to destroy the devil's work. I'm pretty clear about what my job is. You're probably pretty clear about what your job is, whatever it is. Have you ever wondered what the devil's job is? What his work is? The devil has a real simple job. The first thing the devil tries to do is, is to separate us from God and convince us that uh, God will have nothing to do with us. I mean, did you see what he did? Did you see what she said? God won't have anything to do with you. Then the devil's job changes a little bit once somebody accepts Christ. Now the devil's job is, again, still simple. The devil's job is to convince the Christian that your big sin, you you know that one, maybe you have more than one, your big sin or the sum total of all of your sin. That's a big number. The sum total of all of that is so great that the forgiveness of Christ cannot overcome it. That's a lie. As Steve Brown would say, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. But that's the job of the devil. To convince you that any one sin or the sum total of all your sins renders you unacceptable to God. But when we accept Christ and His death on the cross for all of our sins, we are accepted. We are God's children now. Now. So Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. We need to give ourselves and others grace to grow. God's love changes us. God's love can change anyone slowly to be sure, but surely nevertheless. We need to give ourselves and others grace to grow. God's love changes us. God's love can change anyone slowly to be sure, but surely nevertheless. We're kind of like those caterpillars, right? A caterpillar goes into a cocoon, comes out as a, as a beautiful butterfly. And I've often wondered, do you think those caterpillars know what they're going to be? I don't. I mean, it's a worm. I don't think worms are all that smart. The caterpillar has no idea that it's going to become a beautiful butterfly. We have no idea what we're going to become. All that we know is that we're going to be like him. Someday, all of the imperfections, all of the impurities are going to finally fall away completely and we're going to be like him because we are in him. That's where our hope is. 
So the closing verse is verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should give each other a little grace. A little chance to grow. Right? Like that, that, uh, that one uh, automobile insurance ad. You know, this, this company, this company f- forgives. How mature. <laughs> How mature. Give one another grace. We've come full circle. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. He lavished that grace on us at the cross. And once we see that love, once we are grasped and captured by that love, once that love makes its way into our minds and into our hearts, we are changed. Slowly, to be sure, but surely nevertheless. And we're not changed by self-effort, not by self-improvement, not by self-help, but we are changed by the love of God our Father. We are His children. We do not yet know what we will be like, but we know that we will be like Jesus when we meet Him face to face. And so, Christian, take courage. Be encouraged. Give yourself and others grace to grow. We are still under construction. The scriptures are full of all kinds of lessons and puzzles. My prayer for you is that you find a place to discover and to explore them with people who are just like you. If you want to find a place to do that, take the prayer card that you got down at the bottom, check community groups. And I'll be glad to meet with you. We'll find a group for you where you can continue to explore the scriptures. Let's pray pray together. Your questions are probably different than mine. And that's okay. They're your questions. So I want to give you a little time just to talk with God. Maybe you want to ask God for answers. That's okay. Maybe you want to ask God to help you find a place where you can continue to explore His Word. Whatever your questions are, just talk to God.